0: Let's begin in prayer. Father God, we do thank you for your grace and for your kindness that you've already shown and just lavished upon us this morning. We pray now for that grace to continue as we look to your word, open it up before us that we might see you, that we might see your glory and be changed by it, that we not run from it, that we not hide from it, but that we would, it would lodge the seed of your word deep into our hearts your glory and we just pray this in jesus name amen it was a weird conversation uh not one that i was expecting we were um making a lot of different changes at the church and uh one of the longtime members of the church and this was a different church this wasn't this church uh, had come to me um to to for a meeting now i wasn't sure what this is going to be about it certainly i had no idea what to expect i thought he was concerned about some of the changes but in fact, what he was coming to me to say is that he felt that we as a church needed to relax and change our theology and our view of the way we viewed sexual ethics, specifically in the way that we believed um, homosexual marriage should take place. We, uh, as we do here at Grace Covenant Church, we held to the traditional, uh, bibl- what I would call biblical, view of marriage between a man and a woman exclusively and uh, he was saying and his argument was look the culture has changed if you want to have any um, ability to speak into culture look the battle is already won he was a military guy he was a former colonel in the military and he said look the military has already uh, bought into this and so in his mind once the military had made that decision the battle was over it was on us to simply, if we wanted to have any hope of future, to simply give in to that and to change our views, to say this is the reality. Let, if we want to have relevance, we need to wrap our theology around what he viewed was the true reality that was taking place. Now, many of us, as we look at our world and we see that it is getting let's just use the word weird it is getting weirder and weirder by the day a lot of us we're wondering what we do in response to this weirdness some of us and we see a certainly a loud majority mostly from non-christians say that if we're to be relevant we need to have the same attitude and view that this man was coming to me we need to accept reality We need to accept what the culture has deemed has already won. The battle's over. You're just deluding yourselves if you think anything other than the fact. Of course, that's not the only response that is in there. We also seem to have all kinds of fearful responses as well. Responses in which we um, become overwhelmed in our fear and our panic. Responses that make us want to completely withdraw from all culture. And certainly there's a whole myriad of responses, and we'll talk more about some of those responses later on in the sermon. But there's a lot of confusion. What do we do? How do we view? Where is God in the midst of all of this when it seems like culture has shut the door on what we would call sound, changeless, biblical truth? As we've been looking at the book of 1 Samuel, one of the things that we've been seeing over and over again is that the people in this time, though it was certainly thousands of years before us, really, at its heart, is very uh, transmissible to some of the things that we are dealing with in our very same situations. We saw that there was a corrupt priesthood, and in the midst of that corrupt priesthood, which was a microchasm of all the rest of what was going on with Israel, we saw a people who was ultimately selfish, a people who even in their very worship of God had turned it, and so you see this constant play on the word heavy, the Hebrew word for heavy at its root is kabod. And so there's all kinds of plays on that word kabod. And so what it says, God says, you have not made my worship heavy, but in fact you've made yourselves, and he's talking to Eli the priest, you made yourself heavy with the blasphemous worship of your sons. And the sons would go in and they would take whatever part of the meat of the offering sacrifice for themselves. And they would eat it. And so he said, You've not honored me. You've not brought me glory. You've not made me heavy. But your sons have actually blasphemed me. And that word blaspheme in the Hebrew is actually make light. So it's the exact opposite. Rather than making me heavy, you have made me light. And we saw last week the judgment upon Eli and his sons that and we've addressed the fact that the reality is it's very easy for us to point and scoff at them but in our own selves in our own worship it is easy for us to make it all about us and not about God make all of our theology fit around what we want it to say we want what we want it to do and ultimately in the process we are not making God heavy we're making ourselves heavy we're making him light and God has brought judgment. We saw last week the ark of God was brought into a battle. And we, we talked about how what they were trying to do was in essence trying to put God in a box. They were trying to take God and turn him into some sort of cosmic vending machines. That the magic they, they could manipulate according to their own goals. And God was having none of it. And it ended with this haunting story of Eli's uh, daughter-in-law dying and giving birth to this child, Ichabod. Which, of course, is a play off that word, Kavad. Once again, that, that word has so much play in it. And we're going to see there's even more here. And it says, where is the glory or no glory? And her dying words are, the glory of God has departed. But... As we see, that wasn't exactly true. So the ark has now been taken by the Philistine army and is being brought into one of their key capital cities. There are five key capital cities uh, within the Philistine area uh, and five Philistine lords over those cities. And so we pick up in the narrative now in verse 1 of chapter 5. It says this, And when the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up besides Dagon. Now, a couple of things as we look within here. There should be a map that we have up here. And so um, on this map, what we have is you can see there in the orange that's what we saw last week in that circle is of the area. And so they bring it all the way down to Ashdod, that's there on the coast, this place, the, the coastal. is a large city, probably was one of their chief cities. It certainly was one of the five big uh, cities that they have where they had their five Philistine lords. Uh, and being a coastal city, it was also probably one of the cities that probably had the most access to those outside of the uh, Philistine region. But it was also probably a center of worship because what we see is there is the temple to their chief god, Dagon. Now, the Philistines were polytheistic. They had a whole pantheon of gods, but in this pantheon of gods, they had adopted Dagon as their chief god. And so the way things worked within this polytheistic mindset of the ancient Near East is they would have each region would have their own chief god. Now, in having their own chief God, they didn't necessarily um, uh, reject the fact that other regions had their own gods. They just viewed it as, as that other region's God. So they just, there was, there's room for it in their polytheistic worldview. And so, and the way war worked is if you went to war with this other country, you're essentially your God was going to war with their God. And if you won, that means your God won. And one of the things that they would do then is they would then take any kind of religious artifact, particularly any kind of an idol or anything like that, and they would take it into their religious temples. And that's what they did here. They took the ark, which they had a a poor understanding of the ark. Of course, an Israelite would understand God is not in idols. Idol worship was, was forbidden. The Ark was just a visible representation of God's presence as it represented God's footstool, right? And so it wasn't to say that God was bound by the Ark, although certainly it seems like Israel was somewhat confused by that. But certainly the polytheistic Philistines were confused by it. And so they bring the Ark into their temple. And the idea is they're bringing the Ark, they're bringing uh, the, the God of the Israelites into their pantheon. And this is for two reasons. Number one, it's recognizing that now this, their god is going to be an attendant to their chief god, Dagon. But it is also somewhat of a way to kind of show somewhat respect for that god as well. So it's putting him as an attendant to their chief god, Dagon. But it's also a way to say, hey, we're not going to offend you. We're not going to just destroy this because we're recognizing there's still um, they would recognize the reality of Yahweh. They just incorporated him into part of their pantheon of gods within there. Now, in many ways, what they were thinking in many is the same thing as the Israelites. The glory of God has left Israel. God has been deemed powerless. What's going to ensure is actually, it's quite frankly quite comical. But what it's showing is the power of God was not in any way, shape, or form diminished. In fact, it's showing that God was sovereign over all of the events that had taken place. And so we f- pick up in verse 3. And then when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward onto the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands were laying cut off on the threshold only the trunk of Dagon was left to him and this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter into the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day i saw so what we see here is, is really quite comical as they brought the ark of the lord into their temple They come in the next day, and God had tipped their stone idol, which they had a strong representation, much stronger, uh, you know, idolatrous representation of this idol. And so this would have been a very powerful image before them. God had tipped this image first to be face down, prostrate before the ark of the Lord. And so, okay, they're thinking, well, maybe this is just a coincidence. And so they put the idol back up. And so they come in the next day, and not only is the idol only face down, what has happened is this idol has been decapitated and its hands removed. Now that is a significant posture in the ancient Near East, because what would happen is when a king would come in and would kill uh, and would take over and be victorious over an enemy. One of the ways that they demonstrated their military dominance. Wasn't just by killing them, but by decapitating them and also cutting off the hands, so that they would basically they would have an accurate count of how many people were killed. And so, what has happened here isn't just a humiliation of Dagon to the living God, but is actually showing that God has absolutely, decisively defeated Dagon. No ifs, ands, or buts. God is the one who is sovereign in control. He was the one who was sovereign and controlled in the the battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. And now, even in, quote-unquote, Dagon's temple, which Dagon should have been at its absolute most powerful, God has humiliated and defeated this pagan non-God and demonstrated his dominance. Now, notice it says both of his hands were lying. So we're going to see some more plays on that. Verse 6. Now, the hands of Dagon were cut off, but here it says, the hand of the Lord, and we're going to see this a lot, the hand of the Lord was not cut off. In fact, it says the hand of the Lord was heavy. From the root word, kabod. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors. Now, there is a ton of debate on what this is. Tumors really just most literally mean swellings. Um, so there's two different theories of what this is. Well, there's more than that, but the two major theories. One is that basically what God has done is brought in the bubonic plague. So that's one theory, and that, that tends to match. And that's the, probably the most prominent theory. We tend to think of that kind of in more of your face within there. However, there is a strong argument to that that these were actually... Um, <coughs> Anal ulcers as well. So, really, really bad. <laughs> Regardless of what, um, what, what you hold to this, the hand of the Lord was heavy, right? <laughs> and when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. And so they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and they said, what shall we do with the ark of God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And so so they brought the ark of the Lord of God of Israel there. Now, so what they're doing is they're going to take that into, and I believe there's a map here, um, Anyways, they're, they're moving it from the coastal area off. Now, keep in mind, if this is the bubonic plague, they were probably used to plagues coming in before. So there's a certain amount of skepticism as well. It's like, hey, let's just get the ark further away from, um, from the coast. Let's move it a little bit further inland, and that maybe will take care of all of our, ha- all of our problems. Verse 9. But after they had brought it around, the hand... The Lord was against the city, this is now in Gath, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. And so they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. Now Ekron isn't really that far from Gath. And so they were able to hear, and so they see this, this ark coming towards them and like, oh no, they're trying to kill us. And they sent therefore and they gathered together all the lords of the Philistines, and they said, Send away the ark of God of Israel, and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was deathly panic throughout the whole city, and the hand of God was very Kavad. Very heavy there. He was revealing his glory. And the men who did not die were struck with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now, that takes us to chapter 6, verse 1. And the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, and they say, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send to its place. And I find this really interesting because here they're seeing they're being punished by the Lord. But yet they're still turning to their pagan knowledge. They're still saying, we can figure out. Rather than submitting themselves to God's hand, rather than submitting themselves and saying, hey, this is the true living God we need to go and we need to submit ourselves before this God, they're still trying to turn to their own people, to their own understanding. And they said, and these are the diviners, If you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means return him with a guilt offering, and then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not return away from you. Again, his hand... And then he said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they said, five golden tumors and five golden mice. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on our lords. So you must make images of tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give kavod, give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand off of you and your gods and your land. And then he goes; on, they go on to say, and this shows their knowledge, and they showed this previously last week as well, they know the glory of God. They know of the exodus event where God demonstrated his power on Egypt. God had revealed his glory. He had revealed his glory through judgment. Verse 16, why should you Harden, from the Hebrew word, once again, kavod, your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened, Gavad their hearts, after he dealt severely with them. Did they not send the people away and they departed? And then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, Away from them, and and take the ark of the Lord and place it in the cart, and put it in a box as its side of the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering, and then send it off and let it go to its way, and watch if it goes up on its way into the land to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done the great harm. But then, if not, then we shall know it is not his hand that struck us. It has happened to us by coincidence. So here's what they're saying. There's still a lot of skepticism. People like to go back, well, these are just superstitious fools. No, they're, they're really trying to figure this out. And so they're divided a test. And so here's the test. They said, okay, we're going to send this back. Now keep in mind, they're employing pagan magic that's going on here. So this is not descriptive. Don't take this as a way that you're to respond and, and repent of your sins. That is not what this is teaching here. But what they do is they decide, hey, let's do this test to see if this truly is from God and what God is doing. The living God of Israel is the one trying to get, I shouldn't say, is the one forcing us to move the ark into Israel. And it's this. You're going to take two milk cows. In other words, two cows that have recently given birth to calves. And they've never been yoked to any kind of a a wagon before. Now, so what's going to happen is with these cows... Their natural instinct is going to be go back to their calves. That's what their instinct is going to do. They're going to want to go back to the calves to give the milk. That's just what they're going to do. They've never pulled a wagon. This is completely foreign to them. And they're saying if it goes to Beth Shemesh away from its calves, then you'll know that this is supernatural. This is the Lord. If it returns to its calves, then eh, this was just a coincidence. But what we're going to see is what happens is the calves go to Beth Shemesh. Then the men did so, and they took two milk cows, and they yoked them to the cart, and they shut their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord of the cart in the box of the golden mice and the images of their tumors, and the cows went straight into the direction of Beth Shemesh, along with the highway, along one highway, lowing as they went. And they turned neither to the right or to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went up after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So, once again, what do we see? They're not wanting to actually repent and submit to the living God. Their response is, let's just get him out of our way. Let's just move on. And so what they do is they send us to Beth Shemesh. Now, Beth Shemesh is actually an interesting city because what we can find out is Beth Shemesh is actually a Levite city. When the nations was established um, in, in the book of Joshua, there were certain cities that were to be established as Levite cities throughout the nation of Israel and this is one of them. Now, moving on verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and they saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. And they and the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart, and they offered the cows as burnt offering unto the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Bethshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. And these are, <clears throat> these are the golden tumors and the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Eskelion, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled cities. And the great stone beside which they had set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Bethshemesh. And he struck some of the men of Bethshemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck seventy men of them, and when the people mourned because the Lord had struck them with a great bow, blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away? from us. So he sent messages into the inhabitants of, uh, yeah, that city, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it upon you. Now, this is very interesting. We might wonder, wow, God's kind of harsh here. But there's more to the story. You see, Beth Shemesh, like I said, was a Levite city. These are the people populated by the priests, people who were to be leaders in the worship of Yahweh. Entered a train to be their worship leaders, right? Now, not just that, but what we find is that Bath Shemesh was specifically, if we go back to Numbers, the book of Numbers, was from the clan of Kohath. And the clan of Kohath had interesting responsibilities, Numbers chapter 4. This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting, the most holy things. So, in other words, this clan has specific charge to take care of the most holy things of the tent of meeting, including and especially the ark of the covenant. And so we go down to verse 15. And when Aaron and his sons had finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out, after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. And so this was a tribe, or I should say a clan, specifically in the city, that was charged to care for and, and protect and keep holy the most holy things of God, specifically the ark. Now, what we see from the moment they come into contact with this They are reckless with with their worship. A few things that's easy to miss. Number one, what did they do to the cows? They sacrificed them. Well, what's the problem with that? These were female cows. According to the law, you were only supposed to offer male cows. So right off the bat, they chose to do what they wanted to do, what seemed expedient to them rather than obey the Lord. Secondly, what was they supposed to do? They were supposed to Protect the ark to keep it reverent and holy. And that meant making sure it was covered and showing it respect. And what they did instead was they almost put it out on display like some sort of gaudy Las Vegas attraction. Here, let's put it on this big rock for everyone to see. And only that, hey, let's look inside here. Let's look inside. Let's they show complete disrespect for that which they, of, of all people, should have known how to care for the ark of God. But what is their response? Notice what their response was, the exact same thing as the Philistines. Man, we don't want this thing around us. Let's send it off to someone else. In other words, once again, what we see is rather than a heart of repentance, rather than a heart of submission to God, their response is to just simply run. Let's just move away from God. Let's get God out of our picture, out of our sight, and out of our mind. But keep in mind, this book is written, they're, they're using sources compiled, and this is this from during this day and time. But this was compiled during the time of the exile. Keep in mind how those who would be moving into Babylonian exile would hear this. Here they think they've seen the temple of God destroyed. They're being moved out. And it seems like people of pagan origin have won. What are they to do? How do they respond? What is this shown? This is shown that God himself is in control. He didn't need them to win. He didn't need the people of Israel to rally and to come back and rescue the ark for himself. He did it all by himself through his power and in the process demonstrated his glory to a pagan world. Even though they were constantly faithless. Even though they were just skewed and wrong thinking in their theology as the pagans. God demonstrated that he is the one who's ultimately going to bring back his glory. He is the one who will bring about redemption. As they go into Babylon, the hope of Israel isn't to rally some sort of fight, but to trust in God's plan of salvation. That's an incredibly important thing for us to submit to as well. As we look in our day and age, and it looks so much like truth is being snuffed out and people have rejected God over and over again, we ask ourselves, what is our response? What do we do? And from this text, let me submit to you three Three important postures for us to do. Three important postures for us to accept as people who often feel like they're living under the thumb of others. People who may feel like they're living in a world where the enemy is one. The first and all three of them have to do with the word submission. It is submitting to a sovereign God. It isn't us rallying ourselves up it's submitting to a sovereign god and the first thing that we're called to do is submit to a sovereign god in hope submit to a sovereign god in hope we expect him to reveal his power and his glory we submit to a sovereign god in hope you see there's three ways that we often poorly react as believers one of the first ways that we do is kind of what we talked about in the introduction we're like the Philistines. We have our pantheon of reality, our pantheon of gods that we cherish, and a lot of times those gods are money. A lot of times those gods are power. A lot of the time we believe that God, those gods are influence. And so what we want to do is we say, hey, these are the real power and the real authority, and God needs our power. He needs our money. He needs our influence to reveal his glory. And so we want to incorporate our Christianity And we we want to say it's going to succeed through the ways of the world or capitulating to the ways of the world, the means of the world, which values money and power and prestige. What God says is, I don't need you. I don't need your power. I don't need your influence. What Paul said most clearly is that our strength isn't sufficient, but rather his grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in our weakness. In our weakness. Second thing we often do. We minimize our contact Let's just not deal with that. This isn't convenient. Hey, you know what? I got to provide for my family. I've got to do things in my life. And you know what? That means me prioritizing my work life. That means me prioritizing my, um, my fun. Because, hey, you know, you're only in your 20s once. You're only in your 30s once. And so we have this concept and this idea that, much like the uh, people of Beth Shemesh, look, this whole submitting to God thing, we tried that, we tried to do it according to our purposes, didn't really work, so let's just let other people be the holy rollers, right? Let's just let them be the people who committed to God. You know what? The spirituality thing—I'm okay coming to church from time to time, but my wife, she's really the one in our family. She's the real spiritual leader, and so I kind of let her do that. That's her thing. Let me come out of contact with that, and so it becomes easy. Then the more we come into contact, we 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 often a lot of times our response when we do come into contact with it, what happens? We get convicted. And that conviction is not pleasant and it's not fun. And so what we do is we run. We turn away. The third thing we do is we cower in fear. We cower in fear. We have built up the enemy to become unbeatable. We've built up the enemy to say it's too big for God to defeat on his own. We have to resort to the things of God or to the things of this world. We have to make unholy alliances. We have to have a bully that can fight our battles for us because we can't trust God to give us victory on our time. what happens is we end up becoming obsessive in our fear. Constantly afraid of the boogeyman next door when in truth we need to be looking at the termites in our own floor. We become so obsessed with that which we're afraid of, we take no time to look to the God in hope. One of the most powerful things we can do, friends, is in the midst of the bleakness and the darkness, is to live our life in hope that no matter how dark it gets, by faith we believe God is in control, that he will make all things right. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have times in which we lament, right? Right? Lament's a very big part of Scripture. We lament, God, this is terrible that these things are like this. In fact, I would say we don't really have a good theology of lament in our evangelical churches. We either want to go to prosperity gospel where there is no defeat or we want to almost live in the sense in which there is no hope. The biblical view holds the reality intention that yes, there is brokenness in this world and that brokenness is real and it is devastating, but ultimately God is sovereign and he's in control and he will make all things right. And it certainly doesn't mean that we just simply become passive. As we hold on to hope, we actively look for those moments to reflect God, to reflect our Lord Jesus Christ. But in doing so, what do we do? We reflect the Lord who called us to take up our cross and follow Him. Be willing to die to self, trusting in His power over death. Because we defy death and we recognize that death is not the end. Death does not have the final word. resurrection does. So we submit to a sovereign God in hope. The second thing, the second submission we do is we submit our hearts before a gracious God. We submit our hearts before a gracious God. You know, the, the pagan Philistines in many ways showed more fear of the Lord than uh, the Israelites did. And they had an interesting thing when they said, don't harden your heart like Pharaoh. Don't let your heart become that which is heavy. And it's a call for us as well to submit our own hearts before a gracious God. You know, we can talk about a God who is holy and uncontrollable, but what's one of the problems that that the men of Beth Shemesh didn't realize? He's a God of grace and of mercy, a God who enables us to know him. He just calls it to do, do it through his way, his plan of redemption. And for us, that redemption is through Jesus Christ. Where is grace in this passage? It's all over the place. It is all over the place. This passage is thick with grace. Why? Because what we see is the living God is not some indifferent God. He's not some God, the God of the deist or the new age where God is just distant and absent. He is sovereign meticulously over every detail of our lives. He is sovereignly meticulously involved in every aspect of what took place. And he is sovereignly involved in every aspect of your life as well. And what you do matters to God. Who you are matters to God. You will either be a vessel of his remarkable grace and mercy or a vessel of judgment. But it will not be indifference. He is active in your life. Whether you see it, whether you bow before it or not. He is active and sovereign. But notice as well, throughout all of this, he is revealing himself. He is revealing his power. He is revealing his glory. Now, the tragedy in all of this is they refused to submit before it. They refused to, in seeing this, they said, hey, we want our way of life back. We don't want to submit to this God. We want our gods back. We're tired of him oppressing our God rather than submitting themselves. And certainly there are other Canaanites. We think of Rahab the harlot, right, in Jericho. She recognized the hand of God and his power, and what was her response to that? Leaving her pagan gods and turning to the living God. They didn't want that. They refused to submit their heart to a gracious God. Why? Because they wanted it their way. They didn't want grace, they didn't want God to show them mercy. They wanted God out of their way so they could return to being captains of their own lives and their own minds. But this calls us not to harden our own hearts, but to submit our hearts before a gracious God. The third submission. We submit our hearts, we submit our hearts, We submit ourselves to a sovereign God in hope. We submit our hearts to a gracious God. And thirdly, we submit our thoughts before a sovereign God. We submit our heart, We submit our thoughts. This is for all believers. You see, the truth is each and every one of us are in a warfare each and every day. And that warfare is often within our mind to what will we believe? What will we hope in? What will we rest in? In 2 Corinthians, Paul gives language to this warfare. And ultimately what he calls us to do is to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Now we often use that in the process of sin, and certainly that's applicable. That's an application. But in the context there of 2 Corinthians, it's dealing with a a, a people that are struggling to believe and live into the reality of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel runs so contrary to the way of the world. And as we live in this world, it is so easy for us to be conformed to it by its daily rhythms and liturgies and ways of life. The Tritus says, no, power is the way of of influence. Power and influence is the way of happiness. And it's easy for us to lose track and to lose sight of that. And so we, each and every day, we seek to take our thoughts captive in obedience to Christ. Let me give you a very simple, easy way we can begin that process. Because that's very daunting. That can seem very big. What what does that even look like? Let me give you a very simple way, Um, and this, this comes from a journaling prompt. And truth in advertising, let me give credit where credit's due. This comes not from myself. This comes from Clyde Hodson. And so here's what this journaling prompt looks like. And this can be something that you do on your own with a piece of paper and a journal. It could be something you use an app on. Um, It could be something that you use in a conversation with an accountability partner, or it can be a a conversation with a spouse where you just process. It begins like this. You say, I feel because so I. So I feel. How is it that I'm feeling? How am I striving? What am I believing today? Or I should say, what am I manifesting today? Am I filled with anxiety? Am I filled with fear? Put a label on that. And then ask the hard question. Don't go easy on this. Why? Why is it that I feel this way? Now, it's easy to say, well, because so-and-so made me mad. Okay, well, so-and-so made, me, made you mad, but why did that cause you to be fearful? Why did that cause you to be anxious? Why did that cause you to become bitter and angry? Look deeper into what's going on and then say, okay, because of that, I am doing I am retaliating against my spouse. I am just seething in anger. I I can't sleep because of this. I can't sleep because I'm so afraid of tomorrow. Let me give you an example of what this may look like. What's show the next slide. I feel angry. I am angry. I am just seething with anger. Maybe nobody even knows about it, but I am just angry. Why? Well, I could say I'm angry because because things didn't go well at work today. Things didn't go well. But when I really begin to pull the layers behind this, the reason I'm angry is because I doubt God's goodness. And so I'm angry because I feel like I can't trust that God is going to be on my side, that he's good to me. And so, what do I do? I withdraw, and I give in to cynical thinking. Well, this is just this is just life. Let's be cynical. And so that's helpful, but that's this isn't enough. There's another prompt we need to go to. Go to the next thought, and that is, what does the gospel say? How do we bring in the gospel? What is the good news of the gospel that that, that addresses my specific fears? Go to the next slide. The gospel says God is love. This is just one example for that. Jesus died for sinners to reveal his love. So I'm going to list out my cynical thoughts, and I'm going to say not true because of Jesus. This is just a practical, easy way you can submit your thoughts. This isn't the only way. This is just a way to respond. But the question becomes, people, how are you responding? You are responding. You're responding one of the, a way. The question is, how? Our natural inclination isn't to respond to it with the gospel. But the good news, friends, is God in his grace breaks into our hardened hearts and reveals his love and his mercy. Submit to that revelation of God today in your life by faith. Nothing else but faith. Musicians, if you'd come. Father, we thank you for your grace and your kindness. Lord, I confess this is, I, I, I give in. I, I am chief among sinners in this. But you're gracious and you're kind to us in all things. Father, we thank you that you continue to reveal your love towards us. We, you reveal your mercy towards us. And We need you to capture our hearts by faith. Well, Father, we just ask that you, in your grace and your mercy, would give us the faith to believe in the goodness of your gospel. That in doing so, you would release us from our fears. You would release us from our control. Enable us to dance in the freedom of your gospel before you today. We need your spirit to do this. We pray for this in Jesus' name.